We live in a part of the world, uh, really in a part of our country, where it is largely assumed that people know what salvation in Jesus Christ means. Although the numbers continue to grow, if you look at statistics and especially religious surveys, you will hear and read that the numbers are continuing to grow for those who select none. That is, they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. But in spite of that, I think many of us still assume that in this part of the country, people not only know what it means to believe in Jesus, but the vast majority of them actually profess to do so. If you happen to look at obituaries, you will know that one of the first lines in the majority of obituaries is the name of the church with which the person was affiliated. And sometimes, if there is no affiliation, they will simply say something like, he or she was of the Baptist faith. And if you happen to attend a funeral, you will no doubt hear that whoever this person is, no matter how they may or may not have lived their life, they are now rejoicing in heaven, being reunited with their loved ones. And yet, if we are honest, even those of us in the church, we have many questions about what genuine salvation is all about. In fact, questions might not even be the right word to use. We might even say that we have many doubts about what true salvation is. Is everyone who professes to be saved actually saved? Does a quick prayer and perhaps even a baptism ensure that you have a place in heaven regardless of what may or may not happen in the rest of your life? Is it possible to have salvation and then somehow lose it? Or can we walk away from salvation? That is, can we renounce our faith and come to a place where we say, I simply do not believe anymore and therefore we leave? Is there any way to know any of this for sure? Is it possible for us to know that we are not only saved now, but we will be saved forever? Or must these kinds of answers ultimately wait until after our death? These and other questions like them are not peripheral to our faith. These are questions that are significant. They strike at the very heart of what the gospel is and what it means to be saved. As you know, we've just completed a rather lengthy series through the Gospel of Mark, and as such, we have recently ended with the arrest and crucifixion and ultimately the death of Jesus, obviously followed then by His resurrection. And so we've looked for the last few weeks at those details that form the very foundation of our faith, but now we want to look beyond those details. And we want to talk about the significance of those details. What did the cross accomplish, and how can we know whether that is applied to our own life? And so for the four Sundays in November, we are going to be looking at a different angle pertaining to salvation. Today we are going to look at the word preservation. That is God's role in keeping us as His true children not just for today, but for eternity. Those who He saves, He keeps. Next week, we will look at the word perseverance. And that is our responsibility to persevere or endure in the faith. 
Now, I realize that already that might come as a question to you. You say to yourself, well, how can both of these things be true? How can God preserve us and then yet turn around and say that we must persevere? This is yet another one of those issues in Scripture, these doctrines in Scripture where both are proclaimed. Very clearly, the Bible teaches both, and yet we struggle with how they come together. The third Sunday of November, we will look at the word apostasy. That is, is it possible for us, rather than enduring in our faith, to walk away or abandon or reject our faith? Can a follower of Christ decide he or she no longer wants to follow. And then the final Sunday of November, we will look at the word assurance. That is, can we know for certain not only that we're saved now, but that we will be saved forever? And to look at all four of these words, preservation, perseverance, apostasy, and assurance, we will look at the passage of Hebrews chapter 6. We will look at other verses as well. But I've chosen to start each of these four sermons in Hebrews chapter 6 because I believe all four elements are found here in this passage. It is a passage, if you know of it at all, it is a passage that you are likely to think about a warning passage. This is in all likelihood the harshest or strongest warning passage in all of Scripture. And as a result, it is one of the hardest to interpret and certainly to apply. But it is actually much more than merely a warning passage. The title for these four sermons are Saved and Secure. Now, I realize that your cover to the bulletin says something different. The bulletin cover says safe and secure, and yet I'm calling this saved and secure. And because I gave a verbal communication about what my title was, it was misinterpreted leading us to remember that we ought to write things down. So next week it will say saved and secure. But the reason I bring that up is not to call attention to an error, but because I want you to see the question mark that goes with it. I've put a question mark there in the title intentionally, not because I'm uncertain or not because I'm unclear about what the Bible says. I've put the question mark there because I believe many people are confused. Can we be saved and know that we are secure. And so the question mark is there because I believe many people have doubts. So today we are looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Again, we'll be jumping around in Hebrews chapter 6 over the next four weeks. But today we are talking about preservation. That is, God keeps those who are His. Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement 
to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, before we dive into this rather difficult chapter, we want to see God promises preservation. But before we jump into that, we do need to back up and see what the problem is. And so if you have your Bibles open, and surely you didn't close them that quickly, look back to chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I do not read those verses to criticize you. I do not read those verses to point a finger at you. I read those verses to share with you what the writer of Hebrews said the problem was that led to what we are looking at today, and that problem is spiritual immaturity. We ought to know these things. We ought to be settled when it comes to salvation. We ought to know how to discern between what is good and evil, and certainly in this context, we ought to be able to tell between what is a true profession of faith and what is mere words. But the truth is we often can't, which again is why we live in a part of the country where nearly everyone is saved, or so they think, and no one ever questions it. And since we live in a judgment-free world, we dare not apply the biblical tests of true discipleship, opting instead just to believe that all professions are equally valid. And while all of this might seem like the path of least resistance, we don't want to create conflict, and we certainly don't want to offend anybody. We all know how sensitive we all are these days. And therefore, we just take everybody at their word, which in fact becomes very damaging because we wind up not evangelizing the very people who need the gospel because everyone is convinced that they already have it. So to say that we need spiritual discernment in the evangelical church today is, in my opinion, a huge understatement. That being said, we move now to the heart of this passage where we see that God promises preservation. Now, perhaps all you know about preservation is that your grandma used to do it. She used to preserve jams and jellies and probably taught you how to do it, but you didn't listen, nor do you do it today. You just go to the grocery store. But we are certainly not talking about preserving fruits or vegetables. We are talking about God's preservation of us, a word that means to keep. In this case, it refers to salvation. We are talking about God keeping those who are His forever. So in a passage that is largely known for its warning against apostasy, that's the verses preceding what I've read this morning, Following that harsh warning is one of the passages in the Bible that speak about God preserving His own. 
Now, there is a lot going on in this text, and I'm admitting that we are looking at a topic. This is, in essence, a topical, topical series, not an expository one, though we will be looking at this passage and others. But my goal today is not to exposit, that is to explain, every single thing in this particular section. We're talking about preservation. And it begins with the word promise. Right off the bat there, God's promise to Abraham. Now, when we make a promise, we sometimes try to enhance that promise by swearing an oath. We sometimes say something like, I swear to God. I do not recommend that. I am not encouraging that. In fact, the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. I'm just acknowledging that that is a common thing to do, to swear our promise on behalf of the name of God. And since God does not have anyone higher, the text says he swears to himself. There is no one by whom he can uh, appeal to make sure his promise is valid, though again, he needs no such reinforcement because God fulfills his promises. We have just finished a book in Life Group on 10 of the communicable attributes of God. That is, those attributes that are part of God's character and nature that in some sense can be communicated to us. That is, we are to have some of that and be growing in it as well. And two of those apply to what I'm talking about right now. That is, God is faithful. God is going to fulfill His promises because He is a faithful God. And then God is truth. That is, God is not a liar. In fact, God cannot and will not lie. It says that very clearly in verse 18. So His Word is true, and His promises are faithful. Therefore, what He says will come to pass. Now, the promise to Abraham was for future blessings and the multiplication of his household. But if you know that story, you know that Abraham had to wait for a very long time for the fulfillment of that promise. So long, in fact, that it seemed like all hope was gone. Sarah was, to say the least, well beyond childbearing age, as was Abraham. And so from a human standpoint, it seemed like this promise would never be fulfilled. From a human standpoint, there was no hope. But with God, there is always hope. And that is what the people to whom this letter is written needed to hear, and that is what we need to hear as well. The reminder that God is faithful to His promises in the past, in this case to Abraham, and that God is always faithful to His promises in the present and the future. We need hope in order to persevere. That is our topic for next week. We must have the hope of God's preservation of us if we are going to persevere. You see how these two come together and they work together. When we lose hope, everything else becomes rather difficult. We see this sometimes in athletics. We see that when a team loses any hope of victory, that they do not play as hard and as fast as they were previously playing because they have come to realize that no matter what they do, they are not going to win. We sometimes even say that the team has quit. In reality, they probably haven't quit. They've just lost hope. And because there is no hope of a victory, there is no incentive to continue trying very hard. So our perseverance hinges upon our hope. 
And biblical hope is not a wishful thinking. This is not, it may or may not happen. Biblical hope is secure in God's promises. So God keeps us, and as a result, we endure. God preserves us, therefore we persevere. But I'm delving into next week's topic, and you can already see how these four angles all come together. You cannot really talk about one without talking about the others. So let's go back to our passage. Let me walk you through this passage briefly to show you the numerous times that it speaks of God's promises to preserve His children. We've already seen in verse 13 the word promise. We've already talked in verse 14 about the confirmation of that promise with an oath. Now look at verse 17 where we read about the unchangeable character of God's purpose. In verse 18 we see the word unchangeable again along with the accuracy of God's statements. That is what I've mentioned, He cannot lie. In verse 19 we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And three times in that verse, this anchor is described as being utterly reliable. And then the last two verses talk about the fact that Christ is our forerunner, having already entered into heaven, paving the way for us, and affirming the eternal nature of his priesthood. In fact, that's what, one, that's what makes Hebrews a very difficult book. A large part of Hebrews is a comparison between the Old Testament priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In fact, this entire section, chapters 5, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 6, is what we might call a parenthesis. If you were doing an analysis of the book of Hebrews, you would discover that this is a parenthesis. That is, Paul has, or not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, may have been Paul, we don't know, uh, but the writer of Hebrews has brought up Melchizedek in chapter 5 and verse 10. And he comes back to Melchizedek in chapter 7 and verse 1. And in the middle is this explanation. He is in a broader uh, text here trying to compare the priesthood of Jesus with that of this mysterious Old Testament figure of Melchizedek and striving to show that Jesus' priesthood is an eternal priesthood because he's made atonement once for all. Now, the image of an anchor is a clear and familiar image of security. We live in a great part of the country where we have bodies of water. We have many lakes and rivers. And so you are familiar with water terminology. You know what an anchor is. You know that when you're out on your boat, whether it's for fishing or something else, skiing or whatever, and you don't want to move, that is, you want to stay where you are, you drop an anchor. And that anchor is there to ensure that you do not drift with the current or the tide, that you stay where you are. So our anchor is the promises of God, or more specifically, our anchor is God Himself. We do not drift because we are anchored, our soul is anchored in Christ. God's promises concerning our salvation are filled with reminders of His keeping us. I mean, the very terminology we use, eternal life, I give you eternal life. How long is that? By definition, eternal life lasts forever. So the very terminology testifies to our belief that God keeps us saved. In your Sunday school lesson just a few moments ago, if you were in the Gospel Project, as the majority of our classes are, 
you were looking at the covenant between God and his people that was found in the book of Jeremiah. The third of the three points. Now, I'm not confident that your teacher necessarily said this, but it was in your teacher's outline. They have freedom to go away from that. But in the teacher's outline for your Sunday school lesson, there were three points, the third of which said the new covenant provides lasting forgiveness. Not temporary forgiveness, not momentary forgiveness, but forgiveness that lasts. I mean, the words we use to speak of salvation, atonement, redemption, adoption, on and on the list can go. Virtually every major word we use to describe our salvation has an inherent element of God's preservation in it. That is, God is not going to adopt you into his family only to later cast you out. God is not going to redeem you from sin only to turn around and condemn you later. And I could go on and on. So here we have the promises of God. I've only scratched the surface. And these promises are there to assure us that genuine salvation is eternal salvation because God is a God who keeps his promises. Secondly, I want you to see that God's power ensures preservation. He makes a promise to preserve, but how do we know he can keep his promise? I can make you all kinds of promises. Promises are very easy to make. They are much harder to keep. A promise is only as good as the ability or the resources of the person making them. That is, if I'm not capable or do not have the ability or the desire to keep them, then I'm not going to keep my promise to you. So how do we know that God is going to keep his promise to keep us? Well, number one, we've already seen that it is his character. He cannot lie. And so we really don't need to go any further than that. But we will see that God's power ensures preservation. God is all-powerful and possesses all things And therefore, lack of resources is not the problem. There is no problem there. Lack of ability is not a problem because he is all-powerful. So he is completely capable of fulfilling his promises. In John's gospel, there is an encounter between some people and Jesus that took place in Jerusalem in the temple. And they asked Jesus if he is the Christ. Now, again, we've just finished Mark's gospel, and we know that is in large measure what Mark was trying to show. He starts off Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the story about Jesus, the Son of God. And then when we came last week to the cross, we found the centurion saying, Truly this man was the Son of God. So these people are in the temple, and they are asking Jesus, Are you the Christ? And he says to them, my works have testified to this. In other words, you ought to be able to look and see what I've said and done and come to the conclusion that I am indeed the Christ. But they have not believed. And so this is what he says, continuing that dialogue. This is in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. We've just talked about that phrase. How long is eternal life? It is forever. By definition, eternal life never ends. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. That's the opposite side of it. It's the same thing from a negative standpoint. Not only will you live forever, but that means you will never perish. 
And then he goes on to say, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So notice the terminology here. Eternal life, it lasts forever. That means you will never perish. That is the essence of eternal life and the promise of God. It is what John 3.16 says as well, the most popular verse in all of the Bible. Most people know what it is. Most people can memorize or recite most of it. And yet right there, maybe without us even knowing it, is the promise of God's preservation and the power of God to keep it. And here Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them, that is God's children, out of my hand because God is more powerful than any other. There is no one or nothing capable of doing that. Now, we tend to think of our responsibility to cling to God. And again, rightfully so. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Next week, we're going to talk about our perseverance, our endurance. He who endures to the end will be saved. So we tend to think about our need to hold on to God. Most of us are familiar with the, the picture. We've seen it. Perhaps you saw it this past Thursday of a child holding hands with his or her parent. So on Halloween, whether kids came to your house to trick-or-treat or whether you came to, to our fall festival or someone else's, you probably saw multiple kids with their hand out holding a parent's hand. And yet we know that if there's any danger that comes up, it is not the grip of the child that is going to be the important thing. It is the grip of the parent. If any danger arises, that parent and their grip is going to become much firmer, and they're going to jerk that child out of harm's way because it is their grip that really is important. And so it is in our relationship with God. Yes, we are to cling to Him. Next week, we'll talk about that. But we need to be reminded that God is clinging to us, that God is holding us, and no one or nothing is able to snatch us out of His hands. Likewise, it is not our feeble efforts to hold on to God. It is God's powerful grip on us that gives us security. I mean, think about it this way. This is a, another way to picture it. Again, we've just talked about all of those events in the last week of Jesus' life. We, we saw those sorrowful prayers repeated in the garden. Then we went to the cross and we heard that, that, that voice of Christ cry out about being forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all in between, we've heard and seen the struggle that Jesus endured, knowing that he was going to be separated for the first time in all of eternity, knowing that he was going to be separated from God the Father as he bore the wrath of God for our sins. We have seen how hard and horrible all of that was for God in Christ. So let me say it this way. If God, here's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God in Christ has done the most difficult thing, and that is justify sinners. That is, he has paid the price to justify sinners so that we are not condemned for our sins but forgiven. If God has done the more difficult thing of justification, can't we trust him to do the lesser thing which is keeping those that he has already justified? I mean, it really makes logical sense when we think about salvation from God's perspective. If God is sovereign in all things, 
which of course includes salvation, meaning that it is God who calls, it is God who draws, it is God who saves, all of which are spoken about repeatedly in the Bible. Then we can also trust that it is God who will keep us, again, something that is repeated multiple times. But if I'm in control of salvation and you're in control of salvation, then it's no wonder we're worried about our salvation. I mean, if it's up to me, not only to make a decision, but to make sure that I keep that decision valid, if salvation hinges upon how faithful I am or how much sin I avoid or how many good things I do, no wonder people are confused about it. Because if it's up to me, I don't know whether I'm going to be saved tomorrow or not. And I certainly don't know if I'm going to be faithful to the end and receive my crown when it comes to heaven. If all of that hinges upon me, then I fully understand why there are denominations that teach we can gain and lose our salvation, perhaps repeatedly. In fact, I was reading something recently, don't remember what it was. But whatever the article was about, there was someone who had died and someone in the article referenced the fact that they were now certain that their loved one was in heaven. And you know we can't have an article now without comment section. So I was scrolling through the comment sections of whatever this article was, and down there in the comments was someone saying how arrogant it is for you to think that you can know for sure that someone is in heaven. Nobody can know that. And yet the Bible says all of us can know that. That's our fourth sermon. See again how it all bleeds over into one another? We can know because salvation does not depend upon me. Salvation depends upon God. He's the one who saves me, and he's the one who keeps me. So anybody who trusts in Christ can claim not only the promise of God to keep us, but the power of God to ensure that that is the case. All of which leads to our third point, and that is, having seen those two things, God promises preservation, and God's power ensures our preservation. God's people now can enjoy preservation. We are the recipients of this promise. Therefore, we rest in the power of God, so much so that we can now enjoy the preservation that He provides. We are never meant to sit around and anxiously wonder if we are saved or not. Am I saved this week, but I may not be next week? Again, we'll talk about assurance in the weeks to come. But God's preservation of our salvation is meant to be an encouragement so that we can endure knowing that He is keeping us. Romans chapter 8 is probably the strongest preservation chapter in the entire Bible. It certainly is the longest sustained text on our security in Christ, and perhaps you are familiar with at least a part of it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 begins with these words, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, as a Bible student, you know that when the word therefore is there, we've got to ask what it's there for which means there is something that has been said previously that is now leading to this conclusion. And what has been said previously when we come to Romans chapter 8 is the gospel. The first seven chapters of Romans, Paul hammers home the fact that all are sinners. And therefore, we cannot solve our own problem. But then he tells us the solution. But God sent his son in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And then he comes to these stunningly beautiful words in Romans chapter 8, which we don't know they're stunningly beautiful unless we know the first seven chapters. But when he comes to Romans chapter 8 and he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. No punishment. We do not suffer the consequences eternally for our sin. Why not? Because God in Christ has borne our punishment for us. But perhaps the part you know of the chapter most is the latter part of the chapter. A passage that begins in verse 29 with what we sometimes call the unbroken chain of salvation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, those God foreknew, he then predestined. Now I know that's a That's a word that some of us struggle with. That's a word some of us don't like. I want you to set that aside for right now. That's not our topic of conversation this morning. I'm trying to get you to see that when God begins salvation, God completes salvation. And nowhere is that more clearly taught than in Romans chapter 8. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. There is no missing link here. There is no chain that is not there. What happens to the one happens all the way through. For God, The ones God foreknew, he predestined. The ones he predestines, he calls. The ones he calls, he justifies. And that word justified is the word that we normally refer to as salvation or conversion. Again, there's nothing missing here. The same people are spoken of in the entire chain. So the ones he foreknew, he predestined. The ones he predestined, he called. The ones he called, he justified. And the ones he justified, he glorified. So everyone who is justified or saved is also glorified, a word which we use to speak of final salvation with Christ in heaven. So there is no option for someone to be justified and yet not glorified, which is why this is called the unbroken chain of salvation. Now, I hope you heard it when I said it, and you maybe didn't because it's subtle. If you go back in Romans chapter 8, you can read it. I said, those whom he foreknew, he also uh, predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Did you notice all of that is past tense? glorified is past tense. Now, why would Paul put that in the past tense when clearly we are not yet glorified? And the reason is something that was done in the biblical languages but is not often done in English. And that is when something was so certain, a future event is so certain that even though it has not happened, it is so certain that it is spoken of in past tense. So Paul says, we are already glorified. So certain is he of the promises of God to keep us and the power of God to fulfill that promise that Paul speaks of it in past tense. Romans 8 then goes on to talk about how nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has this long list, and and I really like this part. He's got this long list. It's not this, it's not that. That can't separate you, this can't separate you. And then he says, and, and I sort of imagine that he's saying this just in case there's someone out there who thinks they found a loophole. Just in case there's someone who thinks, well, Paul didn't say this. Paul says, nor any other thing in all of creation. You think you found a loophole? 
There is nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul slams the door on all speculation when he says there is nothing that can separate us. So we have heard Jesus say, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We have heard Paul say, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And these are just a few examples. I could give you countless more. In fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen and yet do not believe. Listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. And again, I could cite other references that say the same things. I will never cast out. I should lose nothing. I will raise him up at the last day. So we've seen the promises of God to preserve and keep us. We've talked about the power of God that ensures that his promises will be fulfilled along with his character. That is, God cannot lie. And then having understood all of that, we then can enjoy preservation. Now, perhaps you're thinking, this is, this is good news. In fact, this is great news. Although it does seem to contradict what you said at the beginning. I mean, every Baptist knows the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Pray a prayer, and you're good. It doesn't matter what you do the rest of your life. It doesn't matter how you live. No need to bear fruit that the Bible talks about. No need to have the marks of genuine discipleship that the Bible talks about. Once saved, always saved. Is that what you're now saying? Not at all. Perhaps you've noticed throughout that I have been consistent and specific in saying that God keeps his own. God keeps his children Those who are genuinely saved are kept. I've made a distinction between those who are genuinely saved and those who merely profess to be saved. And next week we'll be talking about preservation. No, that's what we're talking about this week. See, they're easy to confuse. Next week we're talking about perseverance. Our responsibility to persevere, to endure, to keep on going. These two things come together in maybe a way that we can't totally understand. But I am not saying that you can now pray a prayer and live any way you want the rest of your life knowing that God keeps you. If that's what you're thinking, I will urge you to come back the other three weeks. Because we dare not jump to conclusions on merely seeing one angle of this rather than seeing all four. And so all of this begs the question, if I've made the distinction, God keeps those who are genuinely His. God promises to keep those who are truly saved. The question then becomes, do you belong to Him? Is your salvation genuine? Or is it merely words? That's a question that you're going to have to wrestle with. And that's a question that you're going to need to answer. Let's pray.